0: if any one agency
1: any one government any one country are trying to address things like climate change like great migration shifts um things that are at the scale of concern just in terms of the changing economy as it relates to the pandemic if you're doing that by yourself you're going
0: to fail this is a podcast about two things helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Kent Annen, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Ayton and our producer, Laura Finch. And today we're thrilled to be talking with our friend, Marcus Coleman, who is director of the Department of Homeland Security's Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in the Office of the FEMA Administrator. Welcome, Marcus. We've been looking forward to talking with you.
1: Very excited to be here, Kent and Jamie. Thank you for having me as well. Looking forward to the
0: conversation. Marcus, I wanted to just jump in to orient all of us. Could you describe, explain what your role is? What does it mean? What do you do?
1: Well, aside from a very long title... Uh, So, I serve as the director of one of 11 centers for faith based and neighborhood partnerships across the federal government. We're actually part of the White House Office of Faith based and neighborhood partnerships. And many of your listeners may not know that this initiative actually started under George W. Bush as an executive order. And essentially, what our offices do across federal government is we serve as one of many points of entry for faith based and community based organizations. That are either currently engaged in some form of partnership with the federal government or with government entities or want to get engaged around a particular issue or interest that they care about. So for our colleagues at USDA, we have a lot of faith and community-based organizations involved in summer feeding programs, in HHS, that we're in a pandemic at the time of this recording, we've had a lot of robust engagement with faith-based and community-based organizations as it relates to COVID-19 messaging and the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Specifically for my office, the Center for Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships at the Department of Homeland Security, we're focused ultimately on three things. The first safety and security for houses of worship. It's incredibly important for us to make sure that all of the places and spaces where people worship, fellowship and serve um, are safe and secure through partnership. The second uh, continuing to work with faith-based and community-based organizations in a disaster context, so we know that faith organizations and community-based organizations bring tremendous resources, and looking forward to talking a little bit more about that. And the third is combating human trafficking. And so we play a unique role in, alongside our colleagues at the Department of Homeland Security Blue Campaign to continue to raise awareness around some of the indicators of human trafficking and helping people to be able to identify Some of the things that they can do uh, to help stop uh, trafficking before it starts. We also support a large number of missions under that second point for disasters. It's not just natural disasters, it's man-made incidents and humanitarian incidents, which is why I'm grateful to be here for today, for the podcast.
2: And Marcus, can you give us maybe uh, an example or two of when you, you know, I think when you say uh, like natural disasters, We all have kind of a mental picture, you know, tornadoes or earthquakes that readily come to mind. But what about the uh, human-caused or the humanitarian uh, crisis or disasters? Can you give us an example or two?
1: Sure. I'll give two. One will be kind of small, and I think one is big and still right in front of us. So on the small scale, when we talk about human-caused disasters or human incidents – It's about cybersecurity. It's about helping organizations that are adjusting to how they continue to connect and serve in a digital world be mindful of what to do in case they're impacted by cybersecurity. Um, As I mentioned, I talked about safety and security for houses of worship as well. That includes some of the active shooter incidents, some of the active threat incidents that happen. Um, We've done some work on arson prevention um, as well. So that's kind of on the man made side, is helping organizations think through how to build constructive and healthy partnerships with local first responders to address some of those concerns. On the humanitarian side, uh, my office plays a a role alongside other centers and other departments um, to help meet the needs of, of people who may be seeking refuge. So, for example, Operation Allies Welcome is something that our office is in coordination and support of with multiple faith-based and community-based organizations uh, that are seeking to serve and be welcoming to people that that are coming uh, stateside from Afghanistan. Um, and in the past, we've been involved in helping to coordinate resources and interest, right? So in this role, it's less about being operational, but more just about helping those faith and community-based organizations that are providing uh, special services as they do during some of the natural disasters and helping facilitate to get that connected to a point of need. And so we're seeing that at scale, at a scale that many of us have not seen in a very long time um, as a consequence of Operation Allies welcome and continue to do so um, and are just thankful for our faith-based and neighborhood partnerships that are caring for people seeking refuge uh, today and in the future.
0: I've been so grateful that you've been doing that, Marcus. You and I've talked a little bit, and HDI was part of the Operation Allies Welcome. I actually, still have some alumni who are involved, and I deployed with some students to do that. And you know, you, you there's you see some of that partnership, the partnership between military, State Department, and also faith-based organizations, especially as as people move out into communities and into resettlement. Um, but before that as well. I was just thinking about that and thinking about you're talking about this, and I was thinking, oh, you know, for me, part of what got me into this work was experience right after college where I was working with refugees for Jamie, Hurricane Katrina, you know, was part of what got him into this work. For you, what, what got you into this work? Is there any you know, a disaster you experienced, you know, early in your career or, you know, would be really interested in knowing what got you on this path? And were there any specific incidences that led you this way? There were
1: a few. So interestingly enough, and I didn't think about it at the time when I started my career, a lot of what got me into this work were engaging in multi-faith and interfaith services. So many of your listeners are familiar with the Easter prayer breakfast, uh, with a lot of those efforts where you have people from all of the same faith or of different faiths uh, joining together in celebration, and what I what I noticed as a child that I didn't quite process when I was like eight, nine, ten, is why the mayor, the council person, or the city was there. But I knew that government thought that faith groups were really important uh, to fabrics of the community. So. I had spent a lot of time kind of at that space prior to my time in FEMA, uh, working with the county in Pima County, Arizona first, um, and seeing their effort for the, the, their version of the Center for Faith-Based Neighbor Partnerships at the county level. And they were working at the time with the Bush administration to cover a range of issues. So from addressing veterans' homelessness, providing summer youth employment programming, and every, every example that i seen, the church was actively involved. And I was just fascinated by that. The disaster nexus for me also draws back to Hurricane Katrina. At the time, I was actually in college at Howard University in 2005, and we were one of many universities across the country uh, that had received students who were displaced as a result of Hurricane Katrina and was able to, to work with some folks there. Um, Later, during my time in graduate studies, I ended up at FEMA um, under a different project and program. And really, it stuck what stuck with me the most is it was typically our chapel on campus uh, that was providing a lot of the services to those students. They were doing special projects every spring break, alternative spring break, for those of you that are familiar. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated by the work there. And then while I was in grad school, as I mentioned, uh, just by way of happenstance, ended up in a a very lucky position to learn about how faith-based and community-based organizations were engaged intentionally by FEMA and was, was fascinated by that. So I started in preparedness uh, through what's called the FEMA Individual and Community Preparedness Division, where we were having conversations about how to prepare at a very family level, uh, and in the process got to know many faith and community-based leaders, and that led me to the White House uh, Center for Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships uh, under the Obama administration at the time, um, and was able to stay until 2018, supporting both the Obama and Trump administration, and then came back uh, to serve formally uh, under the Biden administration to help lead it as a director. And so that's a little bit of how I got into the role, into the work, and where some of the connections were.
2: Well, and you know, Marcus, as I hear about all these experiences that you've had, first, I want to say at your eight or nine-year-old self, you were thinking about much more complex things than me at that age. I think about the deepest thing I was thinking about was what's gonna to happen to Ryan Sandberg and the Cubs um, at that point. so
0: um, but I, the think other- I was trying to get my house and get my transformer to turn from a car into a robot or something. <laughs> that was where my mind was. <laughs> <laughs> well Marcus, I'm so
2: glad though that you were thinking of those deep things and beyond what uh, Kent and I were thinking about at that stage in life but also for, all those experiences that you've had since. And and for that, I, I've been very grateful. You know, HDI, we've had the chance to collaborate with you and the, the faith-based center there uh, over the last three administrations. And just wondering, you know, one of the things that I've found is that whenever I share that experience with others, especially churches or church leaders, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, What? You know, and then the second is, how do I get connected? Um, so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. How can churches and faith communities get connected to what you're doing? And also, how would they get connected at maybe the local or state level?
1: I appreciate that question. And, and it's something, and I wanna be clear, at eight or nine, I was thinking primarily about the snacks and the things we were doing afterwards. <laughs> but what struck me as curious was like, why are all these local government officials here? That kind of leads to this question of how people can get involved. So I will say in my time in this position and what I've learned over the years and learning from other people, a big piece for a lot of faith organizations and community organizations is starting where they are. So we have a number of listeners, right, that they may already have a food pantry. They might have a special relationship with the community food bank or maybe they're addressing homelessness or they have even a prison ministry. Usually, we seek to serve from just the point of need if we want to serve and support that person. But that may be also the touch point that you can take the invitation to say, well, gosh, what government agency is on the back end of this particular service or this thing that we're involved in? Um, When we talk about disasters and when I've had an opportunity to meet with church leaders or faith leaders that know instinctively they're going to be called on post disaster to serve. I I know, Jamie, you talked about this at, at length in the disaster ministry handbook, oftentimes trying to get your arms around. Being there for, you know, we talk about the big moments where all of the cameras and stuff, like that's a really big job. But oftentimes, if you're running a community food bank again, starting from that place may be the ideal space to be, especially when we start talking about some of the longer term impacts post-disaster. What we often see is a drop-off in attention and needs from the outside. And it's going to be some of those same functions that your church was already supporting that are going to continue to be critical. Um, In terms of getting connected with our office directly or any of the offices, um, we are more than happy to get engaged. Through my office, we have a website, fema.gov forward slash faith. Uh, that provides all of the information about our office and ways to get engaged. And That's a portal to other faith-based organizations as well. Uh, but I would encourage any group of, if you're part of an ecumenical group of faith leaders or an inter, uh, interfaith ministerial alliance, or just a group of churches, maybe you're just a, a church by yourself, but you happen to know a councilman, a mayor, or a governor, uh, inviting them in a conversation to see what issues or concerns are, are interest, of interest to them that you may already be working on it, that they don't know about is a great way to start that conversation at the local level. But I often say, you know, the best thing that you can do is the thing that you already do best and working with government partners can kind of help you think about how to bring some of that impact to scale.
0: That's great. Super helpful way to think and, and be connected and be encouraged on, on what we can do locally. Just as you were saying that, Marcus, I think, you know, knowing you for a few years and um, thinking about your leadership, I've always been really impressed by you how you connect people um, by how you encourage people, by your positivity. Those are three um, things that come to mind as real strengths. I'm sure you have lots of other strengths as a leader, but you know we have students and a lot of leaders uh, who listen to this podcast. What have you learned about leadership and what do you think are the keys to doing leadership um, when we think about doing good, better in response to disasters or in preparing for disasters?
1: Uh- appreciate that question for me. So on a personal note, my faith plays a big part in that, right? In terms of looking to the Bible and looking for me, again, my personal faith, but also remaining curious about how other faiths and cultures have also have stories of leadership. So I'll say first set of leaders for me are kind of some of those stories that you see. And going back to Dr. King's sermon, I think that's one of the things that that he kind of called for, right? Is through his his sermon on being a good neighbor, provided kind of some questions for us to consider as we're looking for different models of people to engage as leaders. A, the practical thing is I think we don't lead alone. Um, I'm finding as I continue to immerse myself in, in, in my studies and as I continue to grow in this job, um, the challenges we face are really big <laughs> and very <laughs> unexpected. Um, and I think if any one agency, any one government, any one country, are trying to address things like climate change, like great migration shifts, um, things that are at the scale of concern. And just in terms of the changing economy as it relates to the pandemic, if you're doing that by yourself, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that I've really taken to heart as of late is what does it mean to become a leader alongside others? And again, even for my office and for the work we do, right, Mm -hmm. doing the thing that we can do best so we can help support other team members. the other piece that I, I I really felt touched me when I was reading through the sermon is the call for altruism. I still think that leadership, what what holds, what is true, is people seek and want authenticity, but they also seek altruism. So I think oftentimes when we're we're called to serve or we're called to engage, you can lead kind of okay. Just trying to address the problems in front of you and pointing out those problems, but if we're talking about leading well, uh, you do need some of those altruistic qualities that are mapped out in the "On Being a Good Neighbor" sermon. Um, And I think what's clear is that people are seeking hope and they're seeking something to be for. And so, providing something that is healthy and constructive and allows them to be for something—be it addressing childhood poverty, um, addressing homelessness, as I mentioned, or humanitarian Uh, crises—those are all important qualities. And I'd say that the last for me and my first days in this office and it's a posture I hope to keep as director. My focuses are listening, learning, and sharing. I've spent a lot of time in this role listening uh, to faith leaders and community leaders from across the country. Um, A lot of time learning from my colleagues and peers that are career civil servants at FEMA and in other parts of government at the state and local level, and hoping that we can continue to share and make those connections. Because oftentimes, the best thing that I may be able to do is to be the person to, to what you mentioned, Kent, is that connects two really good people together to do something that's even greater than than they could imagine. And I continue to learn from it every step of the way. It's something that I've appreciated about watching at HDI throughout your evolution over the past 10 years, about being able to bring together folks that have different interests that are related and getting them connected to think about how they can do things differently. And it shows up not just in the folks that have attended some of your events in the past, but definitely in your students who continue to make great impacts at all levels in government, including at FEMA. I know we have some alumni there as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And Marcus, in addition to those examples, I'm wondering, is there a particular maybe time or a pastor or a particular church that maybe you've worked with in the past that was maybe kind of an exemplar of uh, preparedness or that you've really seen to take a strong leadership role after a disaster?
1: So in terms of taking a strong leadership role after disaster, it goes to Washington, Illinois. Uh, Pastor Ben Davison of Bethany Community Church uh, believed that the tornadoes were... I want to say 2011 or 2013 um, or 2012, but he was actually leading services and they were in between Sunday school and the next service when a tornado was coming their way oh, uh, in Washington, Illinois. And you know they sheltered in place, true to form as with most other disasters. That wasn't the only thing that was happening. His, his kids were sick. There were a lot of other challenges. Once everyone was safe, he immediately sprung into action because. He was also a pastor in the South during Hurricane Katrina, and so he was one of the first pastors to organize a, a helpful place to collect, but more importantly, to filter donations. And so he learned uh, from from disasters past that if he just opened up the door and said we're taking everything, they'd get everything. <laughs> and he did a really good job in organizing with his other ministers and pastors. And he became essentially the donation site and the volunteer uh, reception site. And it was just phenomenal work for a disaster that didn't get a lot of attention in the national news after initial impacts. Unfortunately, that's where most disasters end up living. Um, And, you know, we were able to spend some time with him and his team and the county emergency managers and and the pastors. And that's something that still that still holds with me to this day. Um, on the preparedness side, I think we see so many examples from some of our partners uh, that are affiliated with the voluntary organizations active in disasters, uh, from the Presbyterians to the Lutherans to the Southern Baptists uh, that are all doing great work to try to prepare both at the congregational and individual level, but then also in thinking about safety and security um, and just thinking about the whole facilities as well. Um, A particular leader of note that has done a phenomenal job in providing their platform to promote preparedness is Bishop T.D. Jakes. Um, And I think about his work through the International Pastors and Leaders Summit Uh, He's had some form or function of session for the past few years that specifically has talked about uh, what it means to be engaged in preparedness um, in community with other churches. And of course, I'd be remiss if I don't mention, um, which is true, I think one of the the most impressive opportunities I've had to engage with pastors and faith leaders really thinking about this thing holistically were some of the prior disaster ministry conferences at HDI. Um, there, I did the most recent, the, the one that we did together at Wheaton Church, where we had someone from the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, Reverend Miriam Burnett, as well as other leaders coming together, I think provided some opportunity to, I think, let some pastors and faith leaders know that they weren't alone in thinking about the concerns that were impacting their communities um, at scale. And so, uh, those are just some examples that, that that I've seen people lead on well.
0: Those are great examples, Marcus. Really inspiring, and uh, hearing those stories can help us to, you know, be inspired. But then find these really practical things that that each of us can do. You know, whether it's in a role like yours, or what we're doing for a pastor, for a community leader, there are so many different ways to to respond or be prepared uh, for what's coming. Wanted to shift gears a little bit here, and we have our, our quick five questions where we get to learn, get to know you a little bit more, and maybe some recommendations that Jamie and I, or whoever is listening, can, um, can also take away. So, quick five questions for you. What is, first one, what is a book you're currently reading?
1: So this is definitely not a beach read, but it's one of my favorites. It's called (laughs) Creating Great Choices uh, by Jennifer Riel and Roger Martin, and it's a leader's guide to integrative thinking. I spend a lot of time working at the tension of a lot of tough, tough issues, and ultimately I'm a firm believer that we can facilitate opportunities to create better choices. So that's a book that I'd highly recommend for anybody that's in the business of leading, learning, and serving alongside other groups.
0: Okay, I just wrote that down for myself and potentially for our students. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> and, and
2: this kind of goes along with that first question, Marcus, but what's maybe a book you've given away more than others over the years?
1: Good to Great by Jim Collins. So I was a business management major in undergrad too. So that's a lot of my like, fun reading is business management (laughs) reading. Uh, But Jim Collins, to me, I think is is a great author in terms of just thinking about leadership. I mean, another one is Developing the Leader in You by John C. Maxwell. I think that was the first book I read in college um, that really helped me understand what it means to be a leader. And then I found out later that I, I know he doesn't always name it,
0: but he's a Christian author as well. And so I've enjoyed his readings as well. Nice. That's great examples. Um, Third question, is there an app or a productivity method or a travel product? We all need fewer travel products these days, but, you know, something that you're using right now that's helping you in your work and productivity.
1: Oh, man. Uh, So two concepts. Time blocking. I am vigorously trying to figure out how to master that art of time blocking I'm, I'm finding the only thing i can often grant is time and then the eisenhower matrix is is a tool that i come back to these are like low-tech things mm-hmm. i i don't spend a lot of time on apps specifically for productivity um if anything i find myself in all those affinity pools i think a recommendation is to like delete some of those infinity pool apps and so those are think about your social media app that just keeps going and going and going for like a app. yeah yeah so like Deleting it for like a week, a year may be helpful just to kind of keep yourself grounded. So, yeah, I spend my time trying to avoid apps for that reason. But yeah, time blocking and Eisenhower matrix in terms of
2: productivity tools. Okay, so I'm going to squeeze in a really quick extra question in the middle of the next question What's the Eisenhower matrix?
1: So the Eisenhower matrix, basically, if you have an X and Y axis, uh, the X axis is urgency. The Y axis is importance. It helps you kind of delegate all the priorities and tasks that you have in front of you and kind of where to plot those points. Oftentimes, I think many of us are making a ton of different decisions. And while all of them may be some form of urgent and important, it's been a good way for me to organize which one I can do first. So it's it's very much helped
0: me keep kind of first things first uh, in this new role. Jamie and I went into a meeting with colleagues, sort of a neutral, like a boardroom meeting room on campus last week, and that everything was blank. It's a fairly large room, the whiteboards were all blank except that matrix was up there. We were kind of wondering, you know, did one of our colleagues kind of watching us make sure we don't overcommit in this meeting <laughs> uh, to what comes <laughs> what comes out of it? So that's super helpful. Okay, so I'll go ahead and jump into the next
2: question then. Um, what's maybe a recent highlight from something you've been listening or watching? You know, so maybe a musical artist or a show, something to that extent?
1: Um, so I I listen to masters of scale a lot. I I'll be reminded, and it's actually so this is the emergency management nerd in me. I have appreciated hearing Deanne Criswell, she's our fame administrator her articulate her vision for equity. Um, So again, the job that I do is at FEMA. So the first thing that I'm actually really been engaged in, she has a really good speech. If you haven't had a chance to to listen or hear it um, from the International Association of Emergency Managers, it kind of talks about the future of this stuff. I know that is not like the fun answer, but it's actually something I've gone back to a lot lately. And when I'm not doing that, of course, so like I am a a 90s R&B guy. So 90s R&B and hip hop is kind of my thing
0: um, (laughs) as well. So- Nice. And last of these questions, uh, what do you do to renew your body and mind uh, in this work that can be pretty demanding?
1: That's good. I. I enjoy spending time with my wife and doing nothing. And by nothing, whatever it is, she has me do with the house. And so, <laughs> no, we, we just bought a house a few years ago. So I've, I've actually found a, a lot of joy in getting some of those projects done, at least checking the box on them. The journey there can be difficult sometimes. And then spending time with family and, and friends and loved ones. I think to your point about disconnecting, it is important to, to disconnect and kind of remove yourself from the work for a little bit to, to get rejuvenated. Um, and so those are some of the things that I've, I've done in my downtime and I enjoy doing them with my wife. So...
2: Well, Marcus, we have so enjoyed having you on today and being able to connect. Before we go, curious if there was anything that you wanted to share um, or any information that you wanted to pass along that we didn't get to touch base on today.
1: Sure. I think one of the things that I want to share, because I know a lot of people are listening to this, are are tuned into humanitarian leadership and disasters as an area of focus. For the emergency management standpoint, we are very focused on what equity means in the work that we do as emergency managers. And so I want to encourage all of you, as you're thinking about living, learning and serving and in whatever form or fashion you do, uh, to really focus on what it means to be more equitable in the programs that you deliver. From the FEMA perspective, we've taken some pretty substantial steps to do that. Uh, specifically looking at some of our programs for individuals and families. Uh, We have a program that used to, basically there's a program where people who have gotten their homes from intergenerational inheritance, so maybe your grandfather gave you your home, but you didn't go to the bank, in the past you couldn't apply for disaster assistance, that's completely changed in large part because of, of Miss Criswell and her leadership and some of the changes that she's made. And so we continue to drive from the FEMA perspective and thinking a lot about equity and thinking about how the changing climate continues to impact our work as emergency managers. So my pick, my quick plug is we need more emergency managers. We need more folks in the crisis leadership space. Um, and hopefully as you're doing that, you continue to really think and focus on how you can make the work you do more equitable uh, for those that find themselves on the journey um, for 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 doing what you do best.
0: So, thanks, Marcus. That's great. And as we think about this theme of uh, what we've been talking about with you and of the Better Samaritan of doing good better, you know, an example of taking what you're already doing and helping people in disaster and then continuing to look for places to do that good better. And, and by being more equitable in the services we offer is a a fantastic example and so great to have um, wonderful leaders like you working on this and working on this with faith communities so thank you for the work that you do marcus thanks for your friendship and thanks for your time in this conversation thank
1: you both very much really enjoyed it and look forward to talking to you all soon.
0: thanks for joining us for this conversation i really enjoyed talking with marcus hope you did too and one of the things I'm left thinking about is how important collaboration and partnerships are. Um, the kind of things that we face in the world you know, and in our communities are so much more complex and bigger than what any of us can handle alone. I, Marcus had a great quote about that. I can't remember. It's something like if you... If you're trying to do it alone, basically you'll fail. Um, but together we can make a real difference in these areas. So Marcus is such a great connector, but then for me, it's an encouragement for us to keep connecting, connecting um as churches, connecting in neighborhoods, connecting with government officials, local, state, federal. Uh, and in doing that, we're able to better prepare for what's coming our way that we don't know and also better respond to help people who are vulnerable in times of need. So, so that's a, a, a way I'm excited about continuing to think and work and continuing to try uh, along with you to keep getting better at doing good.
2: Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to the Brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.